Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Friday, November 17th starts right now. On today's show, Ben welcomes longtime writer, radio and television journalist, and co-host of Democracy Now!, Juan Gonzalez. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, and what to do this weekend, you need to head to ChicagoReader.com. And if you want even more Ben Jarofsky, you want columns, you want bonus interviews, you can find him there too. It's ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. It's, uh, oh, what a week, Friday. And I'm delighted to bring on Juan Gonzalez. All my listeners have been bugging me. When are you going to bring on Juan Gonzalez? When are you going to bring on Juan? Well, I got him here, all right? So stop complaining already. I, okay, listeners? God damn, you guys are hard on a guy. They're like, oh, my other guests aren't good enough. I got to get Juan Gonzalez. Well, I got him. I'm looking at him right now. Uh, and he won't disappoint. We did the pre-show before the show, and it was excellent. If the show is half as good as the pre-show, you're going to learn a lot about how immigration works in America and how particularly it works in the city of Chicago. Before I do that, I just want to get something off my mind. The big news of the week, politically speaking, in the city of Chicago is that uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson got the city council to pass his first budget. Uh, the vote was, oh, what was it, 41 to 8, I want to say. So that's a pretty good margin. Uh, so congratulations, Brandon Johnson. In the city of Chicago, Juan, you're this, you're new, relatively new to the city of Chicago. In the city of Chicago, one of the, the weird, strange peculiarities of Chicago is that um, the powers that be in the city test a mayor, rate a mayor by his or her ability to bring in big votes on budgets. It's a complete sham. It's a complete game. I've been talking about it forever. Uh, there's no such thing as a balanced budget. A budget is just a projection. It's a political document. They're saying, oh, yeah, we balanced the budget now. And so they don't want to come before the voters and ask for a tax increase. Most likely somewhere when it's a little more convenient for them to go before the voters and admit the budget is a balance, they'll ask for a tax increase. Juan Gonzalez knows how the game is played. He's covered politics in Philadelphia and New York. So it's no different. Probably. But in the city of Chicago, we pretend officially that this budget is balanced and it goes before the city council. And if you get a big vote, it's like that's the sign of a tough mayor who's in charge. And Chicago loves tough mayors. We love electing tough mayors. This current mayor is pretty much a nice guy. It's an anomaly for Chicago. Think about it. The last mayor, Lori Lightfoot, was always swearing at people. The mayor before that, Rahm, was, had a notorious repu reputation for being thoroughly unlikable. Uh, and he lived up to that reputation, thoroughly unlikable human being. Uh, and then before that was the Richie M. Daly, uh, who was like, get red in the face. Get mad at everybody. Get real red in the face and start cussing them out. He was the boss. He knew everything. And, and like, and we had such a like a high regard uh, for that Mayor Daly, Juan Gonzalez. Every pothole that was filled was like attributed to Mayor Daly. Oh, he knows. He knows that pothole. <laughs> all knows to be because he's so wise. Oh, thank you, Mayor Daly. I once went at a budget hearing, and a resident said to Mayor Daly, Richard M. Daly, the mayor before Rom uh, Juan Gonzalez, that the Sunrises never looked so good since he was mayor. I kid you. Not. I'm like, <laughs> the sunrises. Anyway, they got eight aldermen to vote no. And I, I applaud them. I personally, I believe it's a healthy sign for democracy to vote no. If I were in the alderman, I would have voted no. Not because I have anything against Mayor Johnson or his budget. Just want to show that there's somebody breathing and in the city council. I would have just voted no, okay? Uh, it wouldn't have mattered. It would have passed anyway. 
But the reason cited by one of the aldermen for voting no uh, was hilarious, and that would be Anthony Beal in the Ninth Ward. He said the budget's not balanced. I had a laugh. Anthony Beal, come on. You have been a, you have been playing this game for a long, long time. You became an alderman in the nineties under Daly. You know no budget is balanced. That didn't stop you from voting for all those Daly budgets and Rahm Emanuel budgets. You know why, ladies and gentlemen? Anthony Beal voted no on that budget. I'll tell you why. And I, here I'm going to quote the great Del Marie Cobb, who was my guest last week, last Friday. She knows a thing or two about Chicago politics. She said it's because he's still mad. That Lori Lightfoot took away his committeeship. He was the com- committee uh, chair of the Transportation Committee. Got to have that gavel. Juan Gonzalez, do you know what aldermen would do in the city of Chicago just to hold a gavel at a meeting and get to bang it every now and then? Man, they'll vote for any budget, balanced or unbalanced. Lori took away his chairmanship. He got mad. He became a quote-unquote independent. Uh, Brandon Johnson did not give him back his his chairmanship, so he's still mad. He wants that gavel. Brandon Johnson, I'm telling you, if you want Anthony Beal's vote, just find some committee to make him chair of. I don't care what committee it is. It could be the committee on the committees. Give him a gavel. Suddenly we go, oh, this is a great budget. I like this budget. Bam, bam. All right. That's enough of my cynicism, jaded observations. Well, Ben, from what I've been told about this, it, the city council, even having eight no votes is uh, is is pretty big most of the time uh uh it's not even that divided well it was there was a period under Lori lightfoot uh where and chicago is such a funny city juan we'll get into your background so you're you're just learning chicago but Lori Lightfoot would be like we need uh we need like a commanding sign because it looked like it was questionable there were so many aldermen were mad at her for all various reasons like could she get the 26 votes that that's what I'm saying. Will she get the 26? And I always point out, you only need 25 because as the head of the council, she would be the deciding vote. Uh, but it, so it was a little close uh, there. This, your, your points well taken. This is a commanding margin compared to what Lori Lightfoot got. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, so anyway, all right. Uh, so let me just do a little introduction uh, to Juan Gonzalez, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, most of my listeners, Juan, uh, the reason they were imploring me to bring you on the show was they heard your interview on WBEZ where you talked about um, immigration in the United States and immigration in particular in the city of Chicago. Uh, and you offered information and insight that nobody in the city of Chicago had provided, thus exposing something. A guy can walk in from New York City and in one year know more about immigration in the city of Chicago than every elected official in this city. Either they didn't know or they weren't going to tell us. And everybody said, please have him on. Have you ever heard of him? And I go, have I ever heard of Juan Gonzalez? Oh, my God. This guy is a legend in New York journalism, columnist for the New York Daily News. He was to Ed Koch and, um, oh, boy, uh, Giuliani. What I was to the dailies, a pain in the rear end. Because uh, you told it like it is, and you were of the leftist persuasion. So it's a great honor to have you on the show, Juan. Thank you very much for coming on my well, podcast. It's my pleasure, Ben. And uh, and I've heard uh, quite a bit about you now from, from folks here in Chicago about about your importance and your influence uh, in, in journalism and uh, going uh, way back. So I'm, it's, it's my pleasure to be here with you. Yes. Uh, two old goats going to be talking politics for about an hour. So I'm looking forward to this. He's a, uh, and uh, so Juan, why don't you just start by giving folks a little uh, background on who you are uh, and, uh, you know, the career you've had before you came to Chicago? Well, I think, yeah, as you mentioned, I was a, a, a staff columnist at the New York Daily News for uh, 29 years. And before that, I worked as a reporter and uh, on various beats and uh, in, in Philadelphia at the old Night Raider newspaper there, the, the Philadelphia Daily News. And uh, so I've spent about, I, I want to say about uh, between 40 and 50 years in journalism, depends on how you count. Uh, I've also been the co-host since uh, 1996 of a radio and TV show, uh, sort of a, an alternative uh, and radical radio and TV show that has grown and influenced democracy now. Uh, we're heard on about uh, 1,500 radio and television stations in the United States and in Latin America. We've got about 300 in Latin America that 
uh, that uh, play the show. And uh, so I've had a career in both uh, print, radio, uh, and, and TV over the years. And I retired from the New York Daily News back in 2016 and decided to, uh, I was sick and tired of the continuing collapse of commercial journalism and, and wanted to do some more research and teaching. So I spent about the next six years as a professor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers University in New Jersey. That's when I decided late last year, because you can chalk it up all to my to my wife, uh, who is a who is a, herself a historian and uh, of um, urban affairs and specifically of Chicago and the Latino community of Chicago, and uh, she was aching to get back home because she was born and raised uh, in Chicago, and to be closer to her family. So she began to pester me about she wanted to go back home, and so I finally capitulated and said, okay. I am a, a lifetime East Coast person, as you said, in New York City and and uh, in Philadelphia and in New Jersey. But I will take the plunge, and so we uh, we came back. We came here to Chicago uh, late last year, and she's a professor of of history at UIC, and uh, I've continued to work with Democracy Now on a part time basis, co hosting a few days a week with Amy Goodman, and I've also agreed to take a, a post as a senior fellow at UIC's Great Cities Institute, where I've been doing a research, uh, a variety of research projects uh, that Great Cities is interested in ex ex expanding, including a, um, a new Latino research initiative that they've begun. And you arrived just in time uh, for the um, uh, migrant crisis, and I have crisis in quotes, because as I told you before, I went in the show, I don't see this uh, as a crisis. I see this as an opportunity. The crisis is the inability of Chicago's leaders uh, across the board, the lefty leaders, the mainstream leaders, the MAGA leaders, the corporate leaders, the civic leaders, the editorial board leaders, in my humble opinion. Everybody who's got power in this city has dropped the ball because this is not a crisis, in my opinion. Any, this city lost thousands and thousands of people in this century, Juan, left this city. We have huge tracts of land that are deserted, vacant homes, houses, abandoned, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, you could just see it if you just drive through the city of Chicago, you will see them. And so the influx of people to the city, you would think the city would welcome them and say, hey, this is a, a healthy sign. Things are changing in the city of Chicago. We should put people to work who live in Chicago, building housing for the people who are coming to Chicago. Particularly, let's put black people to work building the housing for the Hispanic people. Then maybe we could cure some of the animosity between these two communities. But no one, everybody goes, it's a crisis. We don't know what to do with this crisis. It's overwhelming. Oh my God, I, there's no money. There's, there's no housing. What are we gonna do? Uh, so this is what we've arrived at. Do you share my belief that this is not a crisis? Go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that uh, it, it definitely is an opportunity. And I think that it, in some people recognize it as an opportunity. As I think I, I mentioned to you, one of the things that is rarely talked about is that the, the United States is currently facing uh, a massive labor shortage. Uh, the Department of Labor reported recently that there are 10 million unfilled jobs in the United States today. Uh, that if every single unemployed person, and they're very, they're, there's only a few million still unemployed in the U.S. today, but if every single person who is looking for a job in the United States got a job tomorrow, there would still be 4 million unfilled jobs in the United States. The reality is that our country, much like most of Europe and Japan and even China, all the countries that were involved in World War II and had produced these huge baby boomer populations are all growing old. Uh, and the, the fact is that as the rest of the baby boomers go into uh, complete retirement and, and, and uh, nursing homes fill up, the country is going to be needing more and more young workers and uh, the, these countries themselves, Italy's in population decline. Uh, the United States is not in population decline only because it, it has been 
for decades now receiving more and more immigrants. Uh, but the the tendency now to continue to clamp down on immigration is almost like a national suicide in terms of being able to maintain the economy and maintain the standard of living of those who are no longer paying into Social Security, but only receiving uh, from Social Security and Medicare. So the reality is that um, the country needs more young workers, and they're, all, and they're inevitably going to come from uh, Latin America, Africa, and Asia, because that's where the most young people in the world are today. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's, it's mind-boggling that instead of seeing the, uh, the chance to fill the, 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 the job needs of the country, we're seeking to continue to uh, build walls and keep people out. And uh, I would like to add one point to that. It's something you said to me before when the air. I've made this sort of joke I, many times where I saw some politicians from North Dakota saying that we have to stop the crisis at the border. Now, uh, if you take a look at a map, the closest border to North Dakota is the Canadian border. But this guy was talking about the the border, like so far away from North Dakota. And and we've made fun of this uh, politician for a while on the show. It was so absurd, uh, the propaganda that MAGA's been putting out. And then you pointed out before we went on the air, forget Chicago for a moment and how we handle it. North Dakota could use an influx of of immigrants because they have job needs that are going unfilled as well, correct? Yes, yes. Many of the Western states and the Midwestern states, not Illinois so much, but certainly Nebraska, Kansas, and these areas are places that are facing extreme labor shortages, uh, more so than the general, uh, the country at large. And so there, there is a need for more migrants to fill these jobs. But the problem is obviously with the migrants that have come in recent years is that most don't have work permits. Uh, because they're not considered yet even a, a permanent residence. Uh, and uh, so they don't have work permits. Uh, and also, they're not in the places that where the most jobs are uh, being offered. So that the problem is the, those who are coming to New York, to Philadelphia, and to, to Chicago could more easily find work and be integrated uh, into their communities uh, if they were... Uh, incentivized to go to other parts of the country. I'll tell you a story. A few years ago, I was invited to speak by the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation to the major community leaders of Fayetteville, Arkansas, because Winthrop Rockefeller, as you probably know, used to be the governor of, at one point in Arkansas. It's uh, part of the Rockefeller family. But um, so I said to myself, why the heck do people in in Northwest Arkansas want me to go and speak about immigration and the Latino community. Well, to my complete surprise, I traveled down there and I was stunned by the number of Latino uh, migrant workers that were in Northwest Arkansas. In some of the schools in Fayetteville, 25 to 30 percent of the children in the public schools were Latino. So I said to these business leaders and, and farmers and you know, it was, it was like a, the elite of Fayetteville. I said, how did all these people get here? You know, and they said, well, you know, uh, in northwest Arkansas, we have a huge chicken processing industry. That's where Tyson Foods is headquartered. And for years, uh, the, the chicken industry has been bringing in Guatemalan workers to fill their needs because they couldn't get anybody else working there. And many of these people settled, they brought their families, they established roots, they started opening up stores. And they told me that the renaissance of many of the small towns in Northwest Arkansas was a direct result of its ability to recruit migrant workers to come from uh, Guatemala and Mexico to come and establish themselves uh, in that area. Uh, so that, that was a completely different picture that I was hearing from the business leaders. Uh, we're, we're talking about conservative business leaders in these areas. They're saying these folks have built, helped to revitalize our towns. Uh, and, uh, and so I think that uh, it, it's all a question of the perspective that you have and how well grounded you are in the reality of what is happening uh, in America, not just in America, because one of the points I constantly make is that the United States is not the only country 
facing what is often labeled a immigration crisis. Well, the reality is that uh, uh, the United Kingdom has been grappling for decades by the huge influx that it has had of Indians and Pakistanis and Jamaicans. France has been uh, in constant controversy over immigration of uh, Tunisians, Moroccans and Algerians, Germany of Turks and Syrians, Italy of Ethiopians and, and, uh, and others from Africa. The reality is that all of the advanced industrial countries of the world since World War II have been undergoing enormous demographic change because during the 19th century, they, they built these huge empires in the global south, expecting only to extract the resources of those countries, never expecting that the people of those countries would follow the commercial lines, the shipping lines, and most importantly, and this is often forgotten, World War II had an enormous impact on migration. Why? Because all the colonial powers drafted into their armies to defeat the Nazis, uh, the Nazis, colonial subjects. The French drafted hundreds of thousands of Africans. The British drafted hundreds of thousands of Indians and Pakistanis. The United States drafted 300,000 Mexicans and and about 65,000 Puerto Ricans to fight uh, in World War II. My father and his two brothers all served in a colonial regiment, the 65th Infantry. It was a U.S. uh, regiment out of Puerto Rico. None of them spoke a word of English. They went. They were attached to Patton's Seventh Army. They went through North Africa, up the boot of Italy, into Germany, fighting for the United States, never speaking a word of English. Right? Uh, and uh, and yet, uh, so these colonial soldiers, when they came back, uh, they had already seen the world. They had seen the empire, and many of them started migrating to the West. And so, what's happened increasingly since World War II is that there's been an enormous demographic change. Uh, uh, of the industrial West, and the people who think of their countries the way they used to be, who is a Frenchman? You know, is a Frenchman somebody who wears a hijab? You know, and uh, and who is an American? They are still trying to understand what has happened. Well, the reality is we have a global world. Capital tears down boundaries wherever it goes, but you cannot tear down the boundaries for the free flow of capital and not expect that labor will also follow those, uh, those lines. So what's happened is increasingly people of Mexico, Puerto Rico, and Latin America have come to where all the, their wealth was taken. It was taken to the United States. The Algerians and the Tunisians and the Moroccans have gone to France. The Indians and the Pakistanis and the Jamaicans have gone to England. And so that's what these places are, uh, are grappling with. But it's all a result of their empires, right? And that's why I always say that my book on Latinos is called uh, harvest of empire, history of Latinos in America, because Latinos are the unintended harvest of the American empire. Uh, and that's why there are so many in so many of these cities all across the country today. Yeah, well, that was a, that was a great riff. I was taking notes on everything you said. I got so many questions to follow up. Uh, and uh, so um, I want to follow up by being specific about uh, the influx of immigrants right now coming to the United States. Uh, but before I get to the nitty gritty, uh, I got to ask you a political, political question that is probably relevant in all of these countries that you mentioned. Uh, and that is the fierce opposition on the right uh, to immigrants coming to the country and the impact that it's had on the left. Uh, and I see it closest here in the United States. I follow it a little bit for the New York Times when I read about uh, England uh, and France in particular, uh, that like the, in the hostilities on their own international, on their soccer team, where there's some players who are mm-hmm. black and that causes trouble for quote unquote Frenchmen, which means white people in France. So I follow it a little bit, but I mainly follow it here in this country. And in my humble opinion, politically speaking, what has happened? is that I'll put a face on it. Donald Trump has gaslit America. And Donald Trump, by hammering this point obsessively for the last eight years and being broadcast 
over so many uh, outlets far greater than Democracy Now! has or the Ben Jarofsky show has. Mm -hmm. I can assure you that, Juan, yeah. has effectively moved America to this bizarre situation where Republicans say there is a crisis at our border, our country is threatened, and Democrats, instead of standing up to them, uh, or libertarians for that matter, you talk about capital is free to come to the United States. Why can't Nicaraguans be free to come to the United States? If you could take money from Nicaragua and invest it in the United States, why can't a Nicaraguan come to the United States? So where are my libertarian friends and all this one? Uh, and uh, the Democrats in particular, though, have moved to the right to kind of prove they do this in so many issues to kind of like prove to America that they're not the softies that the Republicans say they are. And so now we have in the city of Chicago, Juan Gonzalez, Hispanic people who are probably 20 years in this country saying go home to Venezuelans, like Mexican-Americans, you know, saying it in Spanish. Acting like they're special and the Venezuelans are different than them. It's I I believe it's a brainwashing of America by Trump and the right. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, there's no doubt that there are forces not only in the United States but throughout uh, Western Europe that are uh, utilizing the uh, the uh, the immigration crisis to rally people around that their sense of. Uh, going back to the past, to a, a nation, an ideal nation that really never existed, but that where the, the power relations have now changed. So, uh, yes, uh, there, and you're absolutely right. Even in the, in the Latino community, you're, you're finding now, for instance, uh, undocumented Latinos who have been in the country for 15 or 20 years and who are furious that now all of this attention is being to, uh, devoted to uh, getting work permits for the Venezuelans who recently arrived. And they're saying, what about me? I've been here for 15, uh, 20 years, and I'm still waiting uh, to be able to have uh, work permits. I'm still uh, living in the underground economy because I cannot, uh, I, I, I don't have a documented status. So this is creating an en enormous uh, divisions. And that's why it's so important to understand the roots of the problem and also the current manifestations. Uh, you know, we recently issued a report at Great Cities Institute that I, that I worked uh, pretty hard on the last few months uh, on the most recent migrant crisis. Uh, and uh, the, the largest group of people coming into the country over the last two years uh, uh, at the southwest border, apprehended the southwest border, of all the people in the world who have come across the southwest border, the biggest growth has been only among three nations. That is Venezuela, Cuba, uh, and Nicaragua. 50% uh, of all the asylum uh, applications and the people apprehended at the border are coming from those three countries. W what do they all have in common? All three of those countries have been subjected now for several years to economic warfare by our own government. Uh, the Cuban embargo, of course, is the oldest one. It goes back 60 years. Uh, the sanctions against Venezuela have really were ramped up during the first initiative of the Obama and now in the Trump administration, and then sanctions against uh, Nicaragua. Uh, and so our government is involved in economic warfare against these countries. And the example I give, for instance, is uh, Citco Petroleum. Everybody knows Citco Petroleum. You see the gas stations anywhere you go in America. Uh, well, Citco Petroleum is a Venezuelan-owned uh, company. Uh, it's owned by the National Petroleum Company of Venezuela. Uh, the Trump administration froze all of the assets of Citco Petroleum. Last year, Citco Petroleum had $24 billion in revenue, uh, $2.8 billion in profit. None of that money can go to Venezuela because it's been frozen by the Trump administration and the Biden administration has continued to freeze it. I think the, the, the entire budget of the Venezuelan government is something like $15 billion. Uh, so, uh, and you're talking about, about close to 3 billion of its profits are being held ransom here in the United States. Uh, so 
So this economic warfare has created deep crises in this country, and then the people leave. Uh, and uh, so that's a direct result, you know, of of this uh, policy. But we've seen this now for decades that the United States is not uh, not uh, in those in the case of those three countries is deliberately attacking the economies of those countries. In the case of, uh, for instance, Cubans. This is a, uh, another thing that our report points out. Almost as many Cubans have come to the United States in the last two years as Venezuelans. More Cubans have come to the United States, over 400,000 Cubans have come to the United States and been apprehended at the border in the last two years than at any time in U.S. history. More than came in the aftermath of the Cuban Revolution in 1959, more than came during the Marielle boat lift. And it was the Mariel Boatlift, those of you who remember political history, that sank Jimmy Carter, because that's how Ronald Reagan got elected. It was in the midst of the Mariel Boatlift uh, in, in uh, 1980. And more than came during the Balsetto crisis, which was the Clinton crisis uh, of immigration in 1994. More Cubans have come to the United States in the last two years than ever before in American history. Uh, and yet no one is saying anything about the Cubans because most of the Cubans are going to Miami. Uh, they have an established, prosperous Cuban-American community that is helping to facilitate their integration uh, into the Florida situation. I know for sure that Ron DeSantis is not shipping out any Cubans because he'd catch hell if he did it uh, in Florida. Uh, so he, it's easier for him to, to send Venezuelans and Nicaraguans out of, out of the state. So the reality is that uh, the U.S. warfare on these three countries in particular has led to this massive inflow of people in just a very short period of time. And all we need to do is dial back that warfare, end the embargo against Cuba, stop the sanctions in Venezuela, and you would see a radical drop in the number of people coming to the United States from those countries. That's only three. The rest of the region has been totally forgotten by the United States. Another point that we... Uh, we show in our report, and I, you know, people can get it. If you just go to Great Cities Institute at UIC, the website, you'll, you can get, see a copy of the report. Last year, and I'm talking about the fiscal federal fiscal year of 2023, which ended on September 30th. Uh, it just ended on September 30th. Last year, the total foreign aid of the United States to Latin America, foreign aid to the 33 countries of Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, was $3 billion. $3 billion to the entire region, all the countries to put together. Uh, that's a region that has 650 million people living there, a third of them living in poverty. That's less money than the United States gave to Israel last year. Israel got $3.8 billion. Uh, and of course, Israel is a modern, advanced, prosperous nation. Uh, so Israel, with its 9 million people, got more money than all of Latin America with its 650 million people. And of course, that's dwarfed. And both of those are dwarfed by the 113 billion that went to the Ukraine war. So the United States has been ignoring Latin America for years, except to send some little foreign aid money to do drug interdiction or, or train the militaries of those countries. Other than that, it's not doing anything to help the people of Latin America. And, uh, and our report shows that back during the Kennedy-Johnson years uh, administration, 60 years ago, the United States was giving far more money in aid to Latin America uh, than it is today. Uh, and of course, there were many fewer people in Latin America back then uh, than, there are, than there are today. So mm -hmm. uh, our priorities are all screwed up. All we need to do is provide uh, proportional aid to a region that needs it and and stop the economic warfare against these countries. And you will see a dramatic drop uh, in, uh, uh, in migration from those countries. Uh, another thing that we show is that, for instance, Mexican migration. And Mexican migration has historically been the main uh, uh, part, portion of the migration across the Mexican border. Well, Mexican migration is way down. You know, it's uh, there are fewer, uh, more Mexican, uh, more undocumented Mexicans have left the United States uh, in the last few years that have come to the United States. Why? Because Mexico is uh, improving economically. 
It's got a progressive, uh, a much more progressive government that has raised labor standards and allowed unions to become more independent. So fewer Mexicans are leaving Mexico to come to the United States. The same thing could be happening with these other countries if we only stop trying to, to, uh, to screw them all up. All right. Uh, I'm going to respond to, I have, I have a very specific question about the economic warfare and embargoes, but I just want to push back a little bit. Do not want to go down this road. Uh, something you said uh, as a obsessive follower of politics, uh, the Marielito boat uh, immigrant uh, crisis of 1980. Yes, that had an impact, but I would say uh, the greater impact was the hostages in Iran uh, and the recession that uh, Carter brought on uh, in 1980 with his policies to fight inflation and that carried over to the Reagan years. But we'll have that conversation another time. I just okay. had to say that. Okay. Okay. But that's I, fine. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, and by the way, even some of you listeners out there may know some about because Scarface, the movie with Al Pacino, mm-hmm. uh, he was a character. He played a character. He wasn't, he's not Cuban, but he had the same accent in that movie that he has in every act movie he's pretty much in, ladies and gentlemen. I love Pacino. But there was a Mario Lito. Uh, a gangster came from uh, part of that, uh, from Mario. All right. So going back to your, your point about the embargo. So let's just think about this, the logic here. So the Republican Party and MAGA, they contend that there's a huge crisis at the border and we must do something about the influx of migrants coming to the United States. Even though, uh, as Juan pointed out, we desperately need employees in the United States. We need more younger people. So it's not really a crisis. It's an opportunity. But this is their point. They, they say, this is, a cri- this is a crisis. We must stop this. The way to stop it, pretty much everyone knows, is to give take away the reason people or one of the reasons people are leaving. And that is there's no jobs. The economy is in shamble in many, many of these countries. The economy is in shamble in many of these countries because of the embargo. So if you want to stop the quote unquote non-existent crisis that you've created or you've manufactured uh, at the border, if that's your purpose in life, then the fastest, easiest way to do, to do it is to lift the embargoes on Cuba, on Nicaragua, on Venezuela. Why aren't they doing the obvious? Is it because they want that quote-unquote crisis at the border to uh, stir up problems for the Democrats? Or is it because they're just so dedicated to an ideology they don't know how to break free? I think there is a political uh, aspect to this because, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not conspiratorial in my outlook, but I find it amazing coincidence that these crises, uh, uh, these uh, immigration crises that the media uh, play up and that the Republican Party focuses on always come uh, during Democratic presidencies. Uh, that, uh, uh, that, as I said before, the, the, the Marielle crisis in 1980, well, we, could, we could argue what, to what degree it hurt Jimmy Carter, but it certainly arose uh, during the Carter administration, just before his uh, uh, his uh, move to for re-election, the Honduran and uh, Salvadoran quote crisis occurred uh, during the uh, the the end of the first term of uh, President Obama, and the uh, uh, and Clinton in 1994 faced the Balsero crisis. Uh, so each of these times, it was a Democratic president who was in office where suddenly the Republican Party raised, uh, you know, a stern objection and the hue and cry over the, the massive problems at the border. Uh, so I think that the Republican Party does utilize uh, migration and the failure of our government to develop a comprehensive system of uh, orderly I- immigration uh, for its political advantage. At the same time, there is a reality. The Republican Party understands demographics, and it understands that to the degree you allow more people to come in legally and establish uh, permanent residency and then citizenship, the more the demographics of the country will change. And it's uh, as, as I say, the reason why 
comprehensive immigration reform has taken now nearly 20 years and we still don't have a solution uh, or a legislation that everyone can agree on is that we are the debate is over who gets to be an American in the 21st century. And the numbers don't look good for those who, uh, uh, for especially for those in the Republican Party in terms of who are going to be the future voters in the country. So there's a long-term view uh, that the political superstructure of the country is fearful of. And at the same time, there's the short-term political advantage they're trying to whip up frenzy to stay in office. Uh, uh, but I think that the, the long-term reality is, see, legal immigration is way down. It was reduced dramatically, uh, under, uh, especially under President Trump. The numbers of refugees admitted into the country, uh, the uh, temporary protected status, uh, family reunification, all of these, uh, even bringing in uh, skilled workers, you know, the tech, the, uh, the, the engineers, the Indian and Chinese uh, uh, computer engineers that Microsoft and Google and all these companies love, those were reduced dramatically. So what's happened is that all of legal immigration has been increasingly shut down. Uh, and so what you have is a backlog of people who want to use the normal legal processes to get into the country. Uh, if you are a Filipino who goes through the process of the United States to apply for to come into the country legally, your waiting list is like 20 years long. If you're a Mexican, it's 20 years long. Yeah, and uh, so if you don't increase the number of people who can come in legally, you force them to try to come in illegally. Uh, and all you need to do is to increase uh, the number of people who are allowed legally to come into the country, uh, and you would uh, uh, reduce the, quote, crisis at the border dramatically. All right. Uh, and now I think it's time we uh, bring in what I call uh, the Juan Gonzalez revelation, uh, which I think uh, it may be Rob Perel, uh, uh, revelation. So shout out Rob, a good friend of the show has been on many times, great demographer. Uh, and that is this, this is something you said on the, um, the BEZ interview. You were the one who raised the subject that, uh, I think it was like roughly 30,000 Ukrainians that have been absorbed, uh, into, uh, the United States in the last year or so. And that just blew everybody's mind uh, in the city of Chicago. I mean, that sound, that popping sound was minds being blown throughout the city of Chicago because we had been fed one story after another in the media day after day about this horrendous crisis. We don't know where to put these people. We don't know where they're going to work. Oh, my God, we've never built anything in our lives. Let's put them in tents and let's have contractors from Florida build the tents. Unbelievable, Juan. And then Juan Gonzalez goes on BZ and says, do you realize that 30,000 Ukrainians have been absorbed? Nobody nobody even knew they were here. <laughs> I'm like, this city is so weird, Juan. It's like, how come nobody, had, first of all, in power in Chicago pointed that out? We had to depend on Juan Gonzalez and Rob Perella point that out. Uh, all the leaders we have in the city, no, no one pointed that out. So why don't you take a little uh, moment to talk about Ukrainian immigration to this country and to the city and to this area uh, and the fact that it is just so quietly these Ukrainian immigrants have quietly absorbed no fuss no cries no people moaning about a crisis and saying Ukrainians go live in tents okay uh tell go right. ahead well, well as uh, as I as you mentioned it was Rob Peral who first did the the analysis and and uh, and he he ex expressed to me that it was difficult to find the data. But he did a report that actually is kind of dated now. It was, it was done uh, last uh, May. But as of the end of May, uh, according to Rob's figures, 29,000 applications had been filed with the federal government to, uh, to bring Ukrainians to the Chicago area. Of those, by then, 21,000 had already been approved. And so our suspicion is that since then, the remaining 8,000 or so, uh, and this was as of May, uh, and uh, that that these applications had been filed and had been approved, that uh, there are close to 29 to perhaps 30,000 Ukrainians that have come to Chicagoland. 
And but Rob went a step further. He began looking at the public school systems in the area. What did he find? In the Chicago public schools alone, 4,300 children in one year, there was an increase of 4,300 children in the schools whose primary language whose, uh, whose, uh, was either Russian or Ukrainian. Uh, so, and they are, where they are in LEP programs uh, for Russian and Ukrainian speaking children. Uh, and then he went into all of the suburbs and uh, I'm trying to access the report right now, but I'm having a little trouble with my computer. But he actually has a report where he goes uh, uh, school system by school system in the suburbs, especially in the in the northern suburbs. Uh, they've all had sharp increases in the number of Russian and Ukrainian speaking students uh, that have entered the school in just one year. Uh, so, uh, uh, so the reality is that more Ukrainians have come to the Chicago area. Than, and have been integrated quietly into the Chicago area than there have been uh, Venezuelans or people from the southwest border. Uh, uh, there are no uh, Ukrainians, as you say, sleeping in tents or sleeping in police precincts or, uh, or, uh, or seen on lines uh, outside uh, 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 shelters and stuff like that. Uh, why? Because when President Biden approved, uh, got Congress to approve $113 billion uh, in, uh, in aid to the Ukraine war, there was a little, in the fine print of that bill, there was about $600 million set aside by the federal government for the United for Ukraine program, which was a program to, uh, to integrate Ukrainians uh, into uh, US society so that they are immediately eligible for Medicaid, for SSI, for job training, they uh, get immediate work permits. Uh, and these Ukrainians have, have not been admitted for the most part as refugees because there's only a reduced number of refugee slots available every year in the US government. Most of them have come in on humanitarian parole, very similar to the humanitarian parole that Biden has given to uh, to the TPS folks and the others who have come into the country, but the difference is there's no federal money uh, to assist uh, the uh, the Latin Americans have come in, but there is federal money for the uh, for the Ukrainians. So it's a, it's simply a question of it's not that there isn't money; it's just that the federal government chose to uh, open the the faucet. Uh, for money for the Ukrainians, but has done very little to help Chicago or New York or Philadelphia or Denver, these other cities, uh, with or or the cities at the border, El Paso or and uh, or Laredo and Brownsville and uh, and those cities with their migrant problem. Wow, I just that every time I hear this is the second time I've heard you on this, and it just, I mean, there's just this dark part of me uh, that says what the Latin America needs is Putin to invade and then we could finally get some uh aid to help uh immigrants coming across the border that's just the the dark side of me please ignore that people um and um i and then the other part of me and i'll throw this at you uh, that's a little more serious is why aren't the democrats joining together at the state level the city level and the federal level, because Democrats control, at least in Illinois, all three levels of government to say we need a program for folks coming in from Nicaragua. Or, well, Cuba's not even an issue because uh, most of the Cubans, as you said, are going to Florida. And, and let's just accentuate that point that Juan made. DeSantis is not putting them on uh, planes and sending them to Martha's Vineyard, ladies and gentlemen, okay? Uh, so if you believe... The sincerity of Republicans, uh, you're a very gullible human being. So why aren't the powers that be in the Democratic Party in the state, city, and federal level getting together and coming up with just, I don't know, inventing a, a program that will enable uh, the resettlement of uh, immigrants from the Latin America into Chicago the same way uh, we're funding the resettlement of Ukrainian immigrants. I'm sure there's some creative bureaucratic minds and some lawyers there, Juan, who could figure it out. 
could come up with some gobbledygook uh, that would cover the payment of this. Why aren't they thinking creatively on this issue? Well, I think some of them are, but they they're trying to keep it like low key because they're they're afraid of what the reaction might be. But, uh, you know, I've had conversations now with several members of Congress in, in recent years who are who are sort of advocates uh, for the uh, the the migrants who have come across the border. And they say that, um, you know, the new bill that Biden proposed, which he hasn't gotten passed yet, you know, the additional sixty three million billion dollars in aid for the Ukraine war. And remember, sixty three billion on top of one hundred thirteen billion that was uh, originally put, and, and put that in context of the three billion that all of Latin America has received. But let's put that aside. But sixty three billion in Biden's proposal for Ukraine, 14 billion for Israel, uh, for its uh, war with Hamas. And then there's uh, there's also in there supposedly 14 billion dollars for border security, that uh, additional border security. Now, let me give you, on the, on the question of border security, let me give you some uh, uh, numbers uh, that, uh, that we have in our report. Uh, okay, here it is. Between 2003, that's when the Department of Homeland Security was created, and 2021, the United States spent an astounding $333 billion on agencies that carry out immigration enforcement. $333 billion on immigration enforcement. And yet we have more uh, undocumented arriving at our border and being arrested than ever before in American history. Right. We're spending $25 billion just on the uh, in FY 2024, the current budget, the current budget, FY 2024, uh, $25 billion just for Customs and Border Patrol and, uh, uh, and Immigration and Customs Enforcement for, for CPB and ICE. Right. Three, we're spending an astonishing much more money than we've ever spent before on border enforcement, and we still have the highest number of people uh, ever encountered at the border. What's what's wrong with this picture? It's like you throw all the money at the drug war and yet the drugs keep expanding or you throw all the money at prisons and yet uh, and yet you're not having any dent on the crime problem. Uh, the reality is that it's the wrong approach <laughs> enforcement. But OK, so Biden wants to throw on another 14 billion on top of the 25 billion. Well, supposedly, my understanding is that within that 14 billion, uh, there's a one point four billion earmarked for uh, migration assistance. So that sounds like Biden is trying to slip into his new proposal, at least $1.4 billion to help out Chicago and New York and some of these other cities with migration assistance. But that's only a proposal. You don't know if it's going to get through Congress and you don't know whether it's going to be amended or reduced or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, but there, so I told a lot of the members of Congress that, that I spoke to, I said, well, why don't you just simply say, okay, you want your Ukraine money? And the Republicans look like they're not going to give you your, your Ukraine money. <laughs> you need our votes. You need the votes yeah. of the Latino caucus. You need the votes of the black caucus. We're not going to give it to you unless you give us the money to be able to house and properly deal with the migrants that are coming here. Uh, you know, hold, use your leverage, use your leverage. And Hold up the hold up the Ukraine money until you you get uh, uh, you get the money you need for uh, your communities. And I think it would work, but it would take some gumption on the part of the of the members of Congress to really stand together uh, and insist on uh, uh, on getting that money. Now I understand. I saw in the I think one of the news reports today that Governor Pritzker just announced 160 million dollars yeah. for Chicago. So that's something uh, yeah. positive from the state level. But yeah. you, you need considerably more from the federal government uh, to deal, uh, to help out in New York, Chicago, and some of the other cities yeah. uh, so that uh, poor uh, Mayor Johnson is not tearing out his hair, trying to figure out in the middle of the night where he's going to put the, the next uh, tent encampment uh, in which community. And, and Mayor Johnson, just a, a little uh, suggestion from me. Yeah. Anytime you want to, any day you want to hire a housing commissioner, I mean, we, it might be helpful. Uh, you know, just saying. Um, 
no, it's uh, yeah, it's it's great that Pritzker's finally kicking in that money from the state, but the it's the feds that we have to look to. And I always point this out at this stage. Every interview I do, every conversation I have, Juan, uh, the Democratic National Convention will be coming to the city of Chicago. Uh, for some reason, they thought it was a good idea to have the convention here. Uh, and it'll be here, I believe, in July or August of 2024. So I don't know, uh, President Biden. You might have a good reason, politically speaking, since you're going to have the party in Chicago to have people like a housing program that you can show off and brag about and promote yourself as a healer and a builder and put people to work president as opposed to tent cities or folks in police stations. It's just my political uh, suggestion. Um, all right, we'll, we'll close with this one, uh, one, and this is really kind of out of left field, uh, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway. Um, so much of your career where you were on the East Coast, uh, and as I said, I, uh, when I would visit my relatives, I'd be reading you in the Daily News. I said, damn, this guy's a lefty, man. Uh, you'd be going after Koch uh, and Giuliani. I mostly remember you going after Koch. For some reason, that's in my head. Uh, but um, I always kind of got a kick out of Ed Koch. I followed that Koch from afar. I was not a New Yorker, but I followed him. You know what a character he was. Uh, a, a strange guy in many ways, but quite a character. Uh, so in your humble opinion, we haven't even got into how Eric Adams, uh, his pathetic response uh, to their quote-unquote crisis, that's the mayor of New York. Um, how do you think an Ed Koch character who openly bragged, you, I can solve things, I'm tough, I'm smart, I know how to get things. He always, that's how he he promoted himself, you know, roll up my shirt sleeves, get things done. I'm not an ideologue. I'm a pragmatic guy. So how do you think Ed Koch would be handling this situation if he were the mayor of Chicago or New York? Well, you know, interestingly, people forget that it was during the Koch years when there was a major um homeless crisis in the city, nothing like what it is now, but it was still, uh, homelessness was only becoming a major uh, concern post-World War II uh, during the Koch years. Uh, Koch was paying to put the homeless on buses and send them to California. You know, he was doing, he was doing what Texas and, and uh, uh, what Abbott and DeSantis are doing now. He was doing it back then. And he had a program to basically offer the homeless and tell them, listen, it's great weather out in California. You don't have to deal with the, the, the New York City cold and sleeping and sleeping and freezing weather underneath highways. We'll pay your bus fare uh, to uh, uh, to California. Uh, so uh, Koch already sort of pioneered uh, this effort of shifting uh, a problem from one part of the country uh, to another. And uh, only I think Koch would do it with humor. You know, he would try to uh, to uh, uh, to uh, do it with sarcasm, whereas uh, uh, DeSantis and uh, and Abbott have no humor about them uh, in the way they do things. Uh, So uh, I think that he was already ahead of his time in terms of some of some of the uh, maneuvers of some of our political leaders today. Yeah. Well, my uh, that's actually I remember I think it was Koch. Maybe I'm wrong with my mayors in New York where they had a garbage crisis. And they would put the garbage like on a, like a flotillas or something off in the harbor in New York. Maybe I, was that Ed Koch that did that? Uh, I'm not, uh, I don't recall uh, if it was him or not, uh, but I, I know there was a, an attempt by one of our mayors to to um, uh, to to try to put the garbage on uh, uh, on barges. But eventually, barges. they barges. just started shipping the barges to the south and paying yeah. and paying uh, uh, states in the south to. To take all the landfill. Man, I'd have had a field day if I was covering uh, politics in New York. Uh, and uh, But I'll tell you this. My prediction that I've been making lately, I've been t- thinking a lot about Richard J. Daly, uh, the first Daly, uh, who was um, the boss of Chicago. And there's no doubt in my mind uh, that he would have uh, he would have been already em- uh, embarked on a building program, which the feds would be paying for. No, to some the money would be coming. No, and then of course you know you had presidents who delivered stuff like 
Johnson and Nixon would have kicked him the money. We all know that. That's how the game was played once. I have no doubt in my mind there would have been a massive building program already started and everybody would be praising him. Uh, I, I, but please don't mi misunderstand me. I'm not ruining for the return of Richard J. Daly. I'm merely pointing out that uh, I think that's how he would handle it. Um, Juan Gonzalez, it's been a blast. Thank you so much for coming on my humble little podcast. Oh, thank uh, you. And ho I, hopefully I'll, I'll return sometime in, in the future to, to talk further. Oh, I, I, you're coming back next month. What are you talking about? Uh, I may give you a little more time to acclimate yourself to Chicago to talk about issues other than immigration. Although I'm always ready to talk about that. Get your thoughts, compare and contrast Chicago as a political city uh, to New York and also your days. in. I know, I know a little bit of Philly from, again, from afar, uh, your days as a reporter in Philly. So I think that would be a fascinating conversation as well. The political dynamics of Chicago compared to New York city. I think that will be a fun conversation to have. Well, love to do it in the future. Yeah. All right. That's uh, Juan Gonzalez. Thank you very much. Also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. I think that Juan Gonzalez, Ed Koch and Richard J. Daly would agree with me when I say producer Chris, give yourself a raise and take it out of petty cash. Peace and love everybody. And remember, you can always catch up on previous Ben Jarofsky shows. Get Benny J. bonus interviews and those columns for Ben Jarofsky. He's known for his columns for a reason, people. You want to check him out at chicagoreader.com. If you want to follow him on Instagram, it's at Benny J. Show. And as always, don't forget, like and subscribe to The Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.